Welcome to A Learner's Journey. My name is Molly Sanders, and the goal of this podcast is to inspire and motivate you by connecting you with a variety of passionate horsewomen and men who have dedicated their lives to helping horses and their people. I'm grateful you're here. I'm excited you're tuning into this episode. The theme is definitely adventure, and it got me really thinking about what adventure is and how each of us have them, whether they're small or huge, like the one that you're going to hear about today. And I think we're all drawn to adventure. And some of us, like I said, you know, some of us, the adventures that we go on might be small, like meeting somebody new or Uh, redecorating a room and having it look the way you want it to look or traveling somewhere um, where other adventures are huge, you know, going to a brand new country, climbing a mountain um, that take a lot more preparation. And I think that I've always been drawn to people that are great adventurers, the ones that do these amazing things that take, you know, months and years of preparation and I read about them or I watch, you know, movies about them. You're probably similar. You might be one of those great adventurers, but you also might be like me and have small adventures and uh, and then enjoy the stories of the great adventurers. Well, today you're going to get to hear a conversation that I had with a young woman named Lena Haug, and I believe she is one of the great adventurers. She's preparing for the longest race on the planet, which is the Mongol Derby, which I didn't know about until I heard of Lena through a woman I met through one of the virtual clinics that I put on named Trisha Giz. And Trisha reached out to me and said, I think Lena would be a great person to interview for the podcast. And I'm so glad that I followed her advice and reached out to Lena because it's a wonderful conversation. There are a few audio glitches in the interview. I just wanted to forewarn you, um, you know, we're kind of at the mercy of Zoom and internet connections, but I think it won't get in the way too much. And then also just a little uh, let you know about that you're going to hear like almost like the sound of small dinosaurs and it's my dogs in the background playing so if you hear a weird noise that's what it is Um, and maybe it'll give you a little smile to imagine two little dogs playing so get ready uh it's a fabulous informative conversation i think you're gonna love welcome lena i am really excited that you decided to join us on the podcast Um, And I have a ton of questions for you. So um, you ready just to jump in? I'm ready. Okay, cool. Uh, So one of the things that I always like to start with is just to hear a little bit about your story. So like, how did you get started with horses? Tell us a little bit about your background. I'll try and keep it brief. (laughs) But um, total horse fanatic girl, you know, daydreaming about riding from day one and my best friend growing up, her dad was a large animal vet and they had a few horses. And so I would spend as much time as possible over at their house, playing with their ponies and riding. And um, I started working and riding as a pretty young person around first grade. Um, my parents weren't quite able to financially support me and horses the way that I you know, wanted to dive into full time. So I, um, this woman, she was, it was a bit of a hoarding situation. She had about 60 horses. And a flock of kids that would come and trade their labor for time to play with the horses. And I was lucky enough to be introduced into more of a, you know, natural horsemanship environment. Um, We, I didn't have a lot of tack. I had, you know, I was bareback, halters, and us and our little kid tribe would um, essentially play with horses as much as we could. And that developed into being introduced to, um, you know, local clinicians that would come into town. And then that quickly developed as I got older into people asking me to work with their horses. I got to work and intern with other professional um, trainers and horsemen and women. And um, here we are. Uh, There's a lot more as far as like education goes. And, um, you know, my business is training horses. 
as well as uh, I actually work in aviation as well. Which Interesting. Be- <laughs> Entirely. Yeah. So tell us just a brief little bit about that. So what do you do in aviation? Um, so about two years ago, I, my horsemanship took a, a little bit of a turn. I, I, horsemanship is my art. It's, it's a dance. It's a, it's a language. It's a communication. And to make it a hundred percent, your income is puts a lot of stress on that relationship and that art. And so, um, I was thinking about professions that took you on great adventures and gave you freedom to travel as well as time off. And I landed on flying. And so I pursued pretty, pretty quickly and pretty aggressively to become a pilot. Wow. So interesting. Okay. So you definitely have a bent for adventure. Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. And uh, where, where are you located? Where, where did you grow up and where, where's your business located now? I grew up in Northern California um, in the Bay area, North Bay area in, in Sonoma County. And I moved up to Northern Idaho about three and a half years ago. Um, and that's where I started flying. And um, now, you know, I have my horses up there. And But okay. I travel quite a bit down to California again to, to work with horses. Okay. Really, really cool. Okay. So that's a really interesting uh, beginning. I don't, I think you might be the first person that got into aviation that I've talked <laughs> to. Um, so that's, that's super interesting. Um, and I think that it's... Um, I love what you said about your horsemanship is your art, because I think that says a lot to folks. You know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, I love doing this. I'm going to pursue it as a career and it, it, it can be wonderful, but there's a double-edged sword there because all of a sudden now you depend on it in a different way and the art can get uh, a little bit more lost. Um, so that's, that's really interesting that you shared that. So, um, speaking of adventure, uh, and, um, kind of crazy choices, (laughs) you are, um, the reason that this podcast came to be was, um, a woman named Trisha Giz, who we both know and uh, have in common reached out to me and said, Oh, I've got this person that I think would be great for you to interview for the podcast. And she's training for the Mongol Derby, which I'd never heard of. And, um, so I looked into it a little bit and I was like, Oh my goodness. This is nuts. <clears throat> I've got to talk to this person. So you're you're set up to do this derby in July, right? That's correct. Okay. So tell us a little bit about this race. Like, what does it entail? And then I've got lots more questions for you regarding it. Okay. Yeah. So the Mongol Derby is the world's longest horse race, and it is set in Mongolia. And it follows Genghis Khan had about, it, it was kind of like the equivalent of the Pony Express across Mongolia. Um, and the route follows a very similar track across the steppe. It's a thousand kilometers, which is about 620 miles. And we try and do it in under 10 days. Oh my gosh. It's very quick. And each rider uh, gets about 40 different horses to ride. Um, I think, I'll break it down a little bit more. So there's, there's about 30 to 35 riders from all over the world that get picked out of thousands of applicants every year to ride in this race. And the race is itself navigated. We all get our own handheld GPS um, that has the waypoints uh, programmed into it. And with that, there's little stations about 20 to 25 miles apart where we'll swap horses. Okay. And, then, and those waypoints are nomadic families' homes. Um, they're going to feed us and they provide some of their best horses to the riders. Uh, and, you know, there's t- tons of different tactics as far as, you know, the race goes. A lot of people like to team up together. Or, um, we It's first come, first serve on the horses. So if you get in to the station, your horse, actually, the one that you rode in on has to make an appropriate heart rate, uh, which is we can go into the horse welfare and, and, you know, the animal care that's provided in this, this race and a little more detail later. But, um, so once your horse makes heart rate, it really needs to come down to 56 beats per minute within half an hour, uh, or else you get a time penalty. Okay. Uh, and once your heart, horse's heart rate comes down, then you get to pick the next ride, um, and take off and go to the next station. Um, okay. So we- I I've got one question for you just okay. to clarify. So you ride in, 
you get off your horse, they're checking their heart rate, the one that you rode in on. And until that horse's heart rate comes down to the level it needs to be, you can't go off on the next horse. Ah, so there's strategy, like you want to take care of the horse that you're on. Okay, great. Great. Okay. Which is great because uh, we know how human beings like to be competitive and put their (laughs) So, um, and if you do, if you do bring your horse in too hot or lamed or, you know, there's a problem, you get a penalty. And if you get too many penalties, you get kicked out. So um, there's incentive to be kind. <laughs> um, and yeah, then you can take off to the next station. The riders cannot ride at night. You know, we get, we get told we have to stop. And if you keep riding, you get a time penalty as well. You okay. don't have to stop at a station. You can camp out. Okay. I think is going to be a really fun adventure too. <laughs> awesome. That's so cool. So do you know anyone else? Do you know any of the other riders yet? We had a, a, a t- group zoom meeting with all the riders. And so I got to see their faces briefly, but it was mostly like overview Q and a for the riders to, to chat, but we are going to have another one. And then I've, I've reached out and a few riders have reached out to me through social media um, to connect, which is exciting. Yeah. Uh, to hear, you know, what other people are doing to train and see what their programs are. Right. Um, because I think that's kind of the biggest thing is getting ready for something like this. Like, yeah. not, like there's the physical aspect, there's the emotional aspect, there's, you know, everyone only has 24 hours in a day. How do we utilize it to prepare for this insane endeavor? Right. So that, that I do have a question about that, but one of the questions that I wanted to make sure and ask you is, why, why did you decide you wanted to do this? (laughs) Um, That's a really great question. No one's actually asked me that. They asked me, you know, what I want to get out of it, but why do I, I, have you heard of this, the first degree fun, second degree fun, third degree fun? No. First, you're having fun in the moment, like you and I right now. Mm -hmm. Secondary, like you're in a pain cave and it is a supper fest and it is crappy during it. But when you look back, you're like, that's what it's all about. You know, that's what life is about. And I live for moments like that. You know, I absolutely adore pushing myself and seeing the edge, what I can do physically, emotionally. And this race has been on my radar. And um, I was actually supposed to ride in it last year, but the borders closed due to COVID. So 2021 race got pushed to 2022. And when I got in, because I, there's, something like three or 4,000 applicants and they're amazing riders all over the world. You know, who am I to have gotten into this race? Wow. And when I got in, I was just like, Oh my God, it's happening. And couldn't be more excited. It's a, it's a, it's a combination of skills that I, I do all the time. You know, I'm, I'm a pilot. So navigating is constant. I love the backcountry. I spend a lot of time in the backcountry. Um, and horses and cultures. Um, so this is kind of like a, you know, a race that kind of holds a lot of the things that I am really passionate about. Right. All these varied things that you've done in your life have set you up for this, for this race. That's really, really cool. Um, and how, how old are you? Do you mind if I ask? I'm 31. Okay. Okay, cool. Really, really cool. Um, Okay. So you talked, you were, you were starting to talk a little bit about the preparation, but that's something, another thing I'm really curious about, like, how are you preparing for this race? Yes, that is a great question. Um, and I think there is never a limit on how much I should be preparing for this, but, uh, starting in January, I stopped working, um, in aviation for basically taking a sabbatical and I went back to training full-time. So I called a bunch of my old clients and ranches down in California. And I said, Hey, you know, it's still winter up in Idaho. That's where I live in Northern Idaho now. And, um, do you guys have any cults to start? I'm doing this race and I need to spend as much time horseback. And it was like, these people are amazing. They're like, yep, come on down. We got a string for you. So I started, um, a little further North in, um, uh, I guess Northern California at a big ranch. It's a wild horse preserve and they have a training program. Um, had five colts in my string and then saddle horses. If I felt like riding into the evening and 
basically just booked up two and a half weeks um, at these various ranches, putting starts on colts and miles on saddle horses. And this is since January and it has been perfect because now I'm riding, I'm back to, you know, riding all sorts of types of horses. I'm putting first rides on horses, which um, with the way that I like to train is never rowdy. It's very quiet. It's not, and I, I don't want it to be rowdy, um, but it's, it's perfect for my body, right? I'm, I'm on horseback. I'm moving around. I'm, I'm getting a ton of um, time in the saddle. And then I also run. Um, I do a lot of, I run every morning for about an hour and that helps with cardio. Um, and then I need to stretch. So I do yoga too. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, um, I know that your background is with cult starting. Um, and it, how do you, how do you feel like that's going to prepare you for this particular race? And then, and then also how is it going to be different? How's the race going to be different than cult starting? That's a great question. Um, so as far as I understand what the horses will be riding, they are all Mongolian ponies, um, which are very small. They're between 12 and 14 hands. They're just tough as nails though. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredible little heroes. Um, for, and I've spoken to a few riders that have done this race in the past. And they said, these horses are, they're trained, but they're not trained like we know. They're trained, um, to continue their toughness, you know, continue their hardy, you know, herd mentality based um, focus. And so across the board, the riders were saying that the first mile is gonna be kind of squirrely. You know, they may, they may buck a little bit, they may be taking off, um, likely they're taking off. They don't wanna be rubbed and pet and loved on. They're like, they're little workhorses. So in that sense, it's less about being on, I mean, being on squirrely horses is important just to get comfortable and, you know, let your body be a little bit jello on underneath. Um, but I think the importance is varying in horse types, like different personalities, different moves. We all get so used to our horses, right? Like if you're just riding the same two or three horses and you hop on a new one, it feels completely new. It doesn't feel like something you, you know, so um, I think in that case, it's, it's more the variation in types of horses. And then the differences are going to be a size B, you know, how they've been handled in the past, which is different than I handle probably all of my customer horses. Um, and then the tack <laughs> tack is going to be a big one. Uh -huh. So I ride both English and Western. Um, I have like a narrow twist Wade tree Western that I usually start everyone in. And the saddles we'll be riding in um, are custom made for this race. They're kind of like an endurance style, brown skirted, kind of like when I look at it, it reminds me of like a Wintech meets like an endurance style saddle. Okay. They set people higher up off of their backs, um, which I'm not used to as much. I, I ride bareback and then obviously in the tack, I just said. Um, and uh, they're like English style stirrup leathers with, mm -hmm. and then we stirrups that are caged um okay so I thought about trying to find one of these saddles to buy to practice in but the horses are very narrow in Mongolia the ponies are very narrow and the saddles just wouldn't fit our horses here okay um so that idea was vetoed <laughs> okay yeah that's gonna be really that'll be really interesting uh it's like it'll be like running in a new pair of shoes which um, can be a problem. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And now it's time for a short commercial break. Like Lena, we all have stories to share and learning in and of itself can be an adventure filled with jaw dropping heights and mind scrambling lows. This year I started a private Facebook group called a learner's journey to provide a safe and supportive place for horse lovers to share about their journeys. And it has become just that. There are people from all over the world sharing their stories and supporting each other. I'd love for you to join in. You can use the link provided below or search Facebook for A Learner's Journey. I hope you join us. And now back to the conversation with Lena. So 
So I read a couple of your blog posts and you had said that the horses that you're going to, the Mongolian horses are like partly wild and they're kept that way for their own survival. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like why, why do they need to keep them partially wild? Um, yeah, it's a, a, a really good question. This goes into a little bit more, um, well, there's the cultural side and then there's the practical side. And I'll start with the practical side is that the Mongolian climate is, is pretty rough. Um, it's very cold in the winters and summers, a lot of rain. Um, it's pretty harsh and the horses aren't necessarily corralled at all times. Um, the herders will often, and they, they have these pretty massive herds of horses um, and, and they'll turn them out wild, basically turn them out as a big herd to graze because hmm. um, they're nomadic. They're moving and traveling with the grasses and um, their herds will kind of be migrating along with them. But in order for them to survive best, these horses need to be really in tune with their natural instincts and their natural way of life. Right. And so that's, that's more speaking to the practical um, side of things. And then as far as the cultural side, there is um, a lot of uh, family, family ties, family value linked together with the size of the herd, but also like the wildness of the herd. Hmm. I was reading that they don't ever cut the stallion's manes and like the bigger, the wilder, like the tangles, all of that represents the strength of the family. And, and in that sense, if you were to overly domesticate the horses, we would have, we would shift away from that. Right. From the docile space. And um, yeah. It's and that's so, that's so interesting. It's so opposite of here, right? Like it's, there's more pride taken in how well behaved the horses are versus if they're wild and crazy, it's like, oh, that's not my horse, <laughs> you know? That's, that's really interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. And then the other thing too, about um, here, how we're, we're fencing them in, we're, you know, trying to keep them in one space that is ours, whereas they're, they're, it wouldn't make sense. They're, they're moving, they're nomadic um, people. Um, and what, so the, the folks that own the horses, um, how do they, how do they keep track? Like, do they brand them? How do they keep track of who is theirs? That's a great question. I actually don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. I, well, I'll have to, I'll have to interview. I'll interview you when you get back. That sounds good. I will. <laughs> yeah. um, that's super, super interesting. Um, yeah. And you're going to be seeing a ton of the country too. Yeah. A yeah. lot. Yeah. And staying, like you said, the, the, the stations where you'll stay at night are at the uh, nomadic people's homes. Yep. Yeah. So they, they get the majority of the race fee. So it is not cheap to be in this race. Um, it's about, it's just under $15,000. Wow. A lot of that money goes to these families um, for letting us use their horses. And, and they pick out, uh, horse racing is one of three main sports in Mongolia. And they pick their fast, you know, some of these families are giving us their prized race horses to ride. As well as you know, their herding horses, the horses that they use to bring in their the rest of their flock, um, and so and they're going to feed us, and we're eating traditional meals with them, which mostly is mutton. Um, mare's milk is also very very popular, fermented mare's milk, um, and then we're all they're housing us if if we desire, if we want, if we get there and want to rest. Um, so yeah, we're going to, we're going to definitely get to know some of these families and, and get to see how they live. And I mean, you and I both know that Mongolians, you know, when we think about the master horsemen and like the history of horsemanship, Mongolia is such, it's so at, at the top of it. I mean, if Genghis Khan, that's why we have the world of China really is the Mongolians were such fierce horsemen and warlords. They traveled, you know, crazy distances on their little ponies and we're just undefeatable. <laughs> right. That's, that's true. It's funny though, when you were saying that, when you said, you know, we all know that, that this is a part of the horseman's history. I know it's a part of the history, but I was like, I was shaking my head like, oh yeah, no, you don't think of Mongolia. Cause I don't, you know, when I think of like the roots of horsemanship, I think of California, which is really the 
beginning. I mean, it, it's so, um, the, the history is so long and that's just such a tiny chunk. But I think for a lot of people, especially in the States, that's what we identify with, especially when you're talking about natural horsemanship. Mm. We identify with the Dorrance brothers and Ray Hunt and, you know, that route of, of natural horsemanship. And that's all right. Oregon, California. Right. Um, and Which I don't, <laughs> what's that? And you're correct. That That is essentially that strand. But I mean, as far as like ancient history, the, that is where it all really started. Yeah. So cool. That's really, that's really interesting. Yeah. Did, so ha, did you have something else that you wanted to say with that? Oh, um, I guess just like <clears throat> getting this opportunity to, to see, you know, this type of horsemanship, it's going to be very different than what I, you know, how I train, how I work, my mentors and teachers. Right. But there's a deep rooted history and relationship that we can't even, we can't even relate to. I mean, we're talking about people who have survived because of their horses, you know, like their country is a country switched between Russia and China. That's a pretty intense space to live in. And it has endured, you know, namely because of the horse. That gave me chills. I, so, um, I would love to talk to you when you get back. Okay. Cause you're, I mean, the, the experiences that you're getting ready to have, who does that? You know, like people, we travel and we, you know, we do these different things, but the, the intensity of what you're getting ready to do and the, you know, I, I know you're not going to rely on the people, but you kind of are, you are relying on them. And, and, and the other thing I wanted to ask you is how are you going to communicate with them? Do, do, do you speak the language or do they speak English? That's a great question. I, that's something I really need to jump on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm, bilingual and I speak a lot of Spanish. I'm, I was raised speaking German and English. My mom's German, my dad's American, and then spent a lot of time learning Spanish. I love, I love languages. I, I feel comfortable learning and memorizing a few sentences in Mongolian. Um, and that's I, what other writers have done in the past is they'll have a little piece of paper that has basic sentences like fastest horse. I'm hungry. I'm not well. <laughs> um, that they can hand to someone and, and they can basically get by. Um, Call me an Uber. Is that going to be on there? <laughs> <laughs> we are far away from any. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. It's, it's so exciting. So um, I was thinking, you know, I, like I said, in the beginning, I, I hadn't heard of this race. I had heard of something like it and it probably is this derby, but um, I really didn't know much about it. Um, and I wonder, is there, are there people that protest it or are worried about horse welfare? Do you hear people saying, oh, well, you know, what about these poor horses? Um, is that a complaint that you hear? I have not. And, okay. and, but I appreciate you bringing it up because, you know, in our world, horse racing is very divided, you know, mm -hmm. that, but I think something to, to realize with this horse this horse race is it's following similar, um, similar races that they do and have been doing for thousands of years. And the horses will not be running, you know, more than 25 miles. Having the heart rate thing is really critical. And also having vets at each station is very critical. Um, the other thing that we've been advised on as riders is, you know, to make sure the horses are well, you can't just, they, they, they will pick their happiest gate. Some horses, they will lope. They'll lope for 30 minutes. They, that's their preferred gate. Some will trot. If you're going to push a horse, that's a trotting horse into a, like a hand gallop, that horse is going to wear out fast and you're not going to make your heart beat, you know? So back to your original question, as far as people being upset about the, the welfare of the horses, it hasn't come up. It, um, I'm not a huge proponent of Western horse racing, uh, mostly because I don't believe in starting horses at two or one years old and um, using them so hard, so young. Um, the horses that we will be riding, none of them will be less than five years old. Wow. All older. Right. 
Right. And, and like you've already explained, like the, the culture is wrapped up in the welfare of these horses, um, their, their longevity as well as their wildness. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's, I, I'm trying to re- relate it to it as like, we, our horses are our family and, you know, these horses are these herders lifeline, you right. know, it's like the umbilical cord to their, their whole system. Right. It's so cool. So, and tell me about that system. Like, so what, what is the livelihood of the, of these people? I'll have, I'll probably have a lot more idea when, when I get back, but as far as I understand, like a lot of these herders are, you know, they're raising sheep, um, goats and, uh, cultivating their horse herds. The mares are generally not ridden and mostly bred and used that they use their milk. So uh, there isn't a lot of agriculture as far as vegetable growing happening. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Their diet mostly consists of protein. um, And a huge staple of that is, is mare's milk. Interesting. And have you, have you had that yet? I've tried mare's milk, Uh like grass milk flavor, but I've Uh never mentioned mare's milk, (laughs) which I'm curious to see what that's like. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We're definitely going to need to talk to you when we get back. <laughs> um, big, um, apparently 50% of the riders do not cross the finish line in this race. And a big issue is food poisoning or stomach bugs of some sort. Um, so that's something that I've been contemplating, you know, how to prepare my gut for it. I'm a pretty tough gut. I'm not a picky eater. I, I, you know, I'm, I've traveled a lot. Um, spend a lot of time in the back country. So I have like water purification tools. I am going to be relatively selective about things I eat. I'm a few writers I've heard will bring their own food, which is a little insane because we have very limited amount we can take eight mm-hmm. pounds, not including water. Wow. So it's not realistic to bring your own food for this entire ride at all. Like that doesn't right. make any sense. Um, but I also you know, being aware of, you know, if you've ever had food poisoning or anything that's taking you out, it will take you out hard and you get dehydrated and mm-hmm. those are stop your race entirely. Um, on that same line though, I do, I, I, this race is so exciting to me, but it's exciting to me in the sense of being given this opportunity to drop into an entirely different world. And I want to experience it as a whole. I don't want to be so focused on running across that finish line that I'm missing the entire culture and land and experience that's happening on around me. So I plan on eating and dining with the families and um, treating my water (laughs) and staying hydrated. That's so great. So are you, um, are you planning to like record any of this as you're there? Like, do you write or? It's a great question. I've been kind of dabbling with this. I don't want to get too caught up in, you know, carrying a GoPro and trying to keep it charged. I do plan on bringing a camera and I will do little video snippets and take some photos and I love to journal and write. So I, I do want to jot down thoughts and ideas and occurrences that come up because I think again, in the moment, everything's going to probably happen pretty quickly. Um, but at the same time, a thousand kilometers is a long time to be riding across some land and a lot of ideas and thoughts will probably pop into my head. Right. Right. Oh, that's just, it's so exciting. Um, so what, what have you learned about yourself so far in this whole, you know, getting ready and you may not even be able to answer that, but that might be an after the race question, but are there things that you've been like, wow, you know, that you've discovered about yourself? (laughs) Well, I think the biggest thing for me right now is, um, if for any reason this race got canceled or something happened and I couldn't be in it, I have had such an incredible time since January when I I stopped working. And what I mean to say is I kind of entered what the only way I can explain it is like flow state. I entered into this space where I was back working with horses, but it came from an entirely different angle. It came from this angle of connecting and timelessness. And, you know, I, I am getting paid to work and train these horses, but my intention is coming from a an entirely different place of 
being on and around horses and getting ready for a race that you you can't think of it as start to finish. You you have to think of it as endurance, right? You have to think of it as um, like almost like a meditation. Like time is not the goal; it's the moments, um, right. and it's reflected into a horsemanship that has never been truer. Like I, I swear this feeling of um, congruence of consent of peacefulness is landing like it's never landed before. And it's like, it's one of the biggest gifts I could have ever imagined coming out of this experience. Um, Reentering the horse world where, you know, we spoke about it as being an art and being something uh, more meaningful than, you know, having a, a line of horses that are now trained out the door. This has suddenly opened a door to where I get to show up and work from that, from that space. And it's been priceless. <laughs> that's really, that's really wonderful. So do you, um, what, what's the difference? What, uh, why in preparing for this experience, why do you think it's changed how you, um, the goal of interacting with the horses? That's such a good question. And I've been trying to write this down because this has been such a profound experience. I think I'm moving away from the, from human, humans are, we have such high expectations. We have these goals, we have these, it's so important. And if this doesn't happen, this may happen and our ego and that's been set aside. Um, and I think it's because I have developed another career that this doesn't have to be, you know, my name across these horses backs. Um, and fortunately the horses are coming out better and more prepared and more grounded and well-trained compared to before. I mean, obviously I, I had a higher standard for myself before, but there's, um, there's a different quality to my work right now. And I think it's really, it's, I, if I work with a horse for two weeks right now and never get on their back because they're not available, that space isn't available yet. That's okay. It's so okay. Cause I don't, my ego is set aside I have an entirely different goal, which is just being on and around horses, which right. sounds, sounds silly, but um, it doesn't at all. It makes total sense. And it makes total sense in preparation for what you're getting ready to do. You know, you're getting ready to interact with all these different horses throughout a span of time. Yeah. And, and I just, I love, I love what you're saying. I mean, it's like, you're kind of returning to, um, be, because you've set up this place where the aviation is going to be my job um, that you, that you love too, but it, it maybe isn't necessarily the art, right? Even though I'm sure there's that involved <laughs> in it. Right. But, but you're, you're allowing yourself to return to the, the art of right. horsemanship. It's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, it's, it's a, yeah. I didn't realize would be the outcome of training for the Mongol Derby. Uh, it's, it's been the most glorious surprise. <laughs> It's, that's so, it's so wonderful. Um, what would you say, like, what's been the most challenging part of it so far? Hmm. I think if I look back to when I was training for it for last year, the worst part was that I was trying to work full time too. So I was getting up at four o'clock running for an hour, getting to work, working till three and then trying to ride till dark. And I was breaking <laughs> I was not gonna be okay right that was really challenging um I think a little bit more logistics side um right now I've got pretty much all my gear lined up um as far as what I want to take and then thinking about really small details like I need to get you know insurance health insurance that's international um making sure I haven't bought my helmet yet. We all, all riders are wearing helmets, uh, which is really great. Um, and I need, I want to find just the right one that's comfortable and allows enough air through, um, uh, kind of navigating once I got my, I have my ticket to the capital of, um, Mongolia Ulaanbaatar and, uh, navigating that space for the four days before we all gather together, um, kind of deciding 
deciding the practical steps of like, how do I stay in shape, but also rest, you know, these, it, it seems really petty when I, when I even say it out loud, just these like kind of, not under- at all though. I mean, I think, I think it mirrors regular life. I mean, I think right. we're all trying to figure out that balance somewhere. Right. And it's just, I think what you're, what you're doing, it's just way more intensified. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's for a, a certain period of time and right. it's, it is, it's so intense because, you know, you think about, um, I, I used to run, um, long Mm. ago, not competitively, but I was training for a marathon and, you know, you think about, um, the time it takes just to train yourself to be able to do something like that. And then look the logistics of, you know, the race and that kind of thing. Well, I was going to, I was doing the race in Seattle, like half an hour from my home. So not only do you have the logistics of preparing for this event, but you're going, you know, halfway across the world to a place that the language isn't spoken. I mean, there's so many multifaceted pieces to it. So it makes total sense to me what you're talking about. And I don't, I, you know, I don't think it's a little thing. I mean, I think it's, I think it's so fabulous. I'm, I'm really excited for you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder about, you know, part of anything we do, but part of working with horses, um, mistakes are a part of it, right? Making mistakes, making a call based on something that you're seeing with the horse and it wasn't the right one. Um, and you don't learn until in hindsight, um, is there something that stands out for you that you think like there was a mistake that, that was made that, um, brought you a lesson that stays with you? Yes. (laughs) And unfortunately it comes down to humans again. Um, I would say we have a really strong guide in our hearts and when I'm in, in tune with the horse and I am taking the steps and really hearing what, what they need and where they're at. And I'm congruent with that. This mistake is often not made, but the mistake of stepping across that boundary, across that learning curve and trying to satisfy the owner's desire you know, a different trainer of what should be acceptable after so many weeks in training. That's the mistake I've made is overriding my heart, overriding what I know. I know this. I deeply know this and thinking, yeah, but, and then I make the mistake. (laughs) Yes. Um, I totally, I totally get that. I've made that many times myself and I don't know about for you, but you said there's the, yeah, but for me, that yeah, but was, you know, maybe they know more, maybe they're seeing something I'm not, you know, um, they're sharing, you know, like my grandkids ride this horse or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but that there's something in what you're witnessing, you're experiencing with that horse that tells you, uh, uh-uh, and yeah, you override that. Uh, the, the mantra I've been telling myself, and again, this time has just been, I get to do that. I have the privilege of saying, this is not right. This is where we're at today. Um, is that why, what am I going to get out of it by stepping over that? Is that is that going to feel good? Is that, is that right? Are we going to war tomorrow? Like, does this horse, is this horse's life in danger? If we, no, no. Yeah. I'm going to take another week. No one is out. Yeah. That's really, that's really good. That's really, that's wonderful. I like that a lot. Um, that's great. Um, so kind of, uh, you, you've shared, you've shared a little bit about this. Um, but through this experience preparing for this race, and I know your answer will be, I I need to write down some of these questions that I'll ask you again when you get back. Uh, but, um, what have you learned about horses in preparing for this? And in this, in this new way that you're getting this more free way that you're getting to experience them? Mm, a new lesson. Uh, something I've been diving really into is, um, and this may get a little scientific, but the polyvagal theory, um, which is all about a nervous system that all mammals have that involve flight, fight or flight, 
or shut down based on fear. It's like a mobility response versus immobility response. And I'm realizing more and more, just to keep it very brief, so we don't go too far down the rabbit hole, is that we often will send ourselves and, and our horses into a sympathetic response, which means that on a scale, like a low scale of the sympathetic response is a mobile response that's going into a learning, a curious, a moving space. And then the further on that scale goes to terror and, and taking off. And the further on that scale, a horse or any mammal goes, they stop thinking and they start just reacting. And I'm, I'm learning just more and more on this, you know, the scientific side of it, but, but as I, I'm working with horses and watching them go up and down in that scale of how much time and effort we spend in working and training horses on too high of a scale where they're not actually learning anything. <laughs> they're just doing a lot of movements that may look fancy, that may um, be impressive to others, but at the end of the day, they actually haven't taken anything in. They haven't internalized. We haven't trained at all. We've just gotten these big movements. And if you're thinking a performer, and if I can reach into what this race, you know, I'm going to ask 40 different horses to perform pretty heavily. If they're too far on that, you know, mobility scale into a frightful mode, their performance is going to be very limited. It's going to be for a short stint. It's going to be a burst of energy and then responding with you know, trying to release, trying to come back to a, a, a more neutral space. And I'm, you know, as I work with all these young horses, I, this has become so much more apparent where, you know, if, if day after day, you're waking up to the same horse with similar, you know, trauma or similar responses, they haven't actually internalized a lot. Our, our methods, our training is inappropriate. It's not working. It's not, right. they're, they're fearful. And if I could retract everyone from saying this horse needs a more respect that I, I don't believe that's usually a problem and B he's not scared. He just doesn't want to do it. Yes. He could retract that and take that out of our lingo entirely. We would be much better horse people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's a, there's a scale that I've learned in, in on my journey of um, acceptance or tolerance. And, yes. and then, you know, beyond tolerance, it's complete, you know, panic and fear, yep. but a lot of horses just tolerate the stimulus, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. And then, like you said, if, if they, they're, they're having a high level of anxiety or tension as well, the ability for them to understand or be curious about anything is, is so low. And some folks will say, well, you know, it's like, I'm, it's like, I'm starting over every day you know, every day I come out and I'm starting over, they're just not understanding. And, you know, to me, that, that just tells us that they're on that level of tolerance. They aren't moving into acceptance and understanding and then uh, meld that with what you just shared that um, it's, it's because their level of tension is too high. Um, I don't know all of the terms as far as the sympathetic and parasympathetic, but I think it's fascinating. Um, so, I mean, I totally, totally 100% agree with you that when people move into the place of this horse is stubborn, they don't want to do it. They're missing what's really underneath. Um, and usually it's, it's confusion, tension, you know, yep. fever. yeah. Um, that's so, it's so interesting. Um, so, um, I want to know, I have so many other questions, but I feel like I I'll keep you here for hours. Um, we'll definitely, I know people listening are going to be like, ask her this, ask her this. I want to know this. Um, but I, I mean, I would, I would, I've said this repeatedly, but I hope that we can connect after you're done and, um, and I can interview you again. That'd be super fun to hear about what you've learned. Um, so, um, how can people, I'll start with this. How can people follow you like, or connect with you to learn more about your adventure coming up? Um, that's a great question. I, I started a, a webpage, a website for the race and I keep a blog pretty well updated. I'm not great at it, but um, at least once a month, if not more, I try and keep little video snippets and photos and let people know where I am, what I'm doing and, and any, you know, Q and A, ask me questions. I might have an answer and we can put a link to it as well. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. 
Yeah. Okay. And then I have an Instagram handle that I also just keep updated with photos and kind of where I am and training. Sometimes little videos of, you know, an interesting thing that happened and is going on with a horse. Um, cool. So you may, you might just get me on Instagram. <laughs> I have, I think I've been on it once and I've been like, ah, oh, it's just another thing to learn, but I'm so intrigued <laughs> with what you're doing. Um, that might just be the thing that gets me on Instagram. <laughs> Very cool. So, and then you mentioned, I mean, the, the, the cost of this race is enormous. Are you, are you doing any like fundraising as a yep. part of this? Okay. I started to go fund me last year and it was met with such amazing support. I think a lot of people love to live vicariously through insane people yeah. and like myself. And um, a lot of my community knows that, you know, this is such a, accumulation of what I love to do and wanted to see it come to fruition. So I did start a GoFundMe. I'm fairly nearly to the goal of that one. Um, I did pay my entire race fee already. I have my flights. Um, and right now what the last bits of um, fundraising is going to is some gear, um, the, the last parts of my gear um, and, and room and board once I get there for the first four days. But, and so the, the $15,000, that's just the entry fee. That's correct. Right. So then you've got the travel, the gear, all this other stuff. Okay. My goodness. That's huge. That's do it. you have, do you have a ballpark amount um, of how much? About 20,000 is what the race um, organizers had suggested. I, I kind of be ready for. On top of the race no. fee or oh. as including it. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, and, and can people find the GoFundMe on the website yeah. or, okay, great. I'll, I'll make sure people. And if you look up my name under GoFundMe, it, it would come up as well. Okay. That, I keep there as well of what's going on. Okay. That's awesome. Well, I am so inspired talking to you and um, it, it is, like you said, people love to live vicariously through crazy people. <laughs> um, it's so true. I mean, I think we all, there's, I think there's an adventure in all of us and we've all had our own, you know, adventures through life. And, um, but to hear this, I mean, not very many people do something to the, to the degree, to the scale that you're doing. I mean, this is like an Everest climb is what I'm kind of comparing it to in my mind. So I'm just, I'm so excited for you. Um, you know, have a wonderful time and, learn, learn lots. And, uh, I am going to, I'm going to, uh, get in touch with you when you get back. And by the way, so that I know, when do you plan to be back? Will you be back in August or? I will be back at the end of August. Um, okay. so the race starts July 20th and the first two days are, we don't get the route until the few days before. So we learn how to use our GPSs and have kind of look overview of the map and the route. Um, a little bit of training and then the race starts the 22nd then actual takeoff um, date is the 22nd and again we want to try and wrap up the race within 10 days and so I'll be back into civilization I'm gonna probably stay in Mongolia for a little while as long as I'm not injured <laughs> and uh, get, just try and drop in a little further that's so, awesome yeah well, well it's like after August Okay, cool. That sounds good. We'll have a wonderful time. And uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been a blast. What a fun conversation. The love that Lena has for life, horses and adventure is tangible and contagious. When I was a kid, I used to have posters covering my walls of my favorite artists and heroes. I think a Lena Haug poster would fit right in. I hope you go to her website and follow her adventures. And if you can, pitch in a little to help her with the final expenses of the journey. I'll definitely be reaching out to her when she returns to continue the conversation, and I'll share it here on this podcast. So if you haven't already subscribed or followed the podcast, depending on where you watch or listen, make sure to do that. It'll help to make sure you don't miss any of the episodes, and it helps me to spread the word to others that will enjoy the podcast. So as always, I'm grateful that you're here and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.